Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. The transmission of a religion closely connected to a particular culture into a very different religious and cultural environment is a difficult act of translation in which a balance must be struck between remaining true to doctrine while understanding and accommodating cultural difference. Members of the Society of Jesus were engaged in a series of such projects in Asia in the late 16th and 17th centuries. This already difficult task was made more complex by the need to maintain unity and discipline among individual Jesuits when travel was dangerous and time-consuming and letters might take years to reach their destination. In his masterful book, The Visitor, Andre Palmero and the Jesuits in Asia, published by the Belknap Press of Harvard University in 2014, Dr. Liam Brockier explores these issues through a study of the life of Andre Palmero, who traveled throughout Asia settling disputes over complex questions of belief, practice, and ritual. This informative work is not only a bi- biography, as Brocky skillfully uses the career of Palmero to complicate the story of the Jesuits in Asia. For instance, showing that national origin was not the main factor determining how much or how little individual Jesuits approved of an accommodationist approach. This book is highly recommended, and scholars, graduate students, and those interested in issues of both mission history and the problem of translation will find it well worth reading. I hope you'll also read it and that you'll enjoy the interview. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Christian Studies. I'm Dr. Franklin Rausch of Lander University, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Liam Brocky about his new book, The Visitor, Andre Palmaro and the Jesuits in Asia. Liam, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you so much for joining us. So I wonder if you could begin just by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in the Jesuits. Sure. I'm a native of uh, Long Island, New York. I grew up in the shadow of uh, Teddy Roosevelt's uh, summer home on the North Shore of Long Island. Uh, and uh, as uh, a young child, had no particular interest in the Jesuits. Indeed, uh, I was not educated in Catholic schools uh, until I went to college, uh, where I went to the University of Notre Dame. And when I was there, I remember coming home uh, after from my first break at Thanksgiving time in my freshman year and asking my parents, why didn't you send me to Catholic school? And they said, well, you never asked. So <laughs> uh, I, guess, uh, I guess I should have asked, but I didn't. So uh, my encounter with uh, sort of the history of Catholicism uh, and even with uh, religious orders, keeping in mind that Notre Dame is not a, a Jesuit school, uh, only came after I graduated. And I had been a history major and decided that uh, I wanted to pursue uh, history further after uh, having several interviews in uh, the corporate world and decided that really wasn't for me, that I should go back to graduate school and pursue uh, a degree in history. Uh, and uh, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, and this is in the mid-1990s, uh, and I spent uh, a year uh, waiting tables before I went and spent a year teaching English in China. That seemed like something to do while I waited for my graduate applications to get uh, uh, to get approved, uh, and so it did take uh, a year for that to happen. Uh, and I spent a very valuable year living in China, and I thought the experience of being a foreigner in China was a very very interesting experience, and it led me to be interested in sort of the first Europeans to leave Europe and travel around the world. I could say I 
uh, either in contexts like the Americas or Africa or Asia. Uh, in my case, it was just a felicitous occurrence that I happened to be at uh, Brown University to do my uh, doctoral uh, education when uh, I met a Portuguese professor who said, uh, wouldn't it be great if you came to Portugal? We have plenty of uh, uh, archives that talk about encounters all over the world uh, between uh, Europeans and uh, Asians, Africans and, and Americans, and perhaps uh, you, know, you could make that in your field. And I hadn't studied Portuguese at that moment, uh, but uh, I was encouraged that uh, I should be able to do this. I had pretty good French. Uh, and when I went there for the first time in uh, 1996, uh, I learned uh, slowly that there was a rich mass of documents that I could look at. And I also learned that the Jesuits were very, very good at keeping records. Uh, and we have piles and piles of paper that they produced uh, in Asia that was shipped back to Europe and just sitting there in Europe. And it seemed to be a very good coincidence that I had these materials that hadn't been looked at in a long time. Uh, they described encounters on the other side of the world. And I wouldn't necessarily have to go to all those other places. I could go to Europe, which had been always uh, a dream of mine to spend uh, as much time as possible in Europe and in the historic cities of Europe. And this was a good excuse to do that. So everything sort of came together that way. Uh, my ex personal experience uh, in China being something that uh, sort of uh, awoke my interest in studying Europeans in China, but my background as a Catholic was uh, something that sort of uh, encouraged me to, to look at these Catholic sources, though not because I wanted to make this a, a spiritual journey, but more than one that was something analytical and engaged with topics that I thought were interesting, uh, the intersection of religion and culture, for example. These are things that came out during my doctoral study, which then uh, parlayed into my first book, which was a version of my uh, doctoral dissertation, which was called Journey to the East, uh, the Jesuit Mission to China, and then this new project, uh, The Visitor, uh, about uh, Andre Palmero. Excellent. And for our listeners, the book we're talking about now, The Visitor, is excellent, but also so is Journey to the East. So if you like this interview, don't just buy The Visitor. Please also get Journey to the East. Thank you for the pitch, Frank. My own work's right on East Asia, so I, I've been citing your book. Great. Well, first of all, let me just ask, you know, both these books that you've written have a lot to do with the Jesuits. Can you tell us how they've been studied in Asia, the Jesuit missions, and how is your study different? Okay. Um, my first project, and that has a lot to do with this, so I might be referring to both of them, because they both focus on uh, Jesuits in Asia. Um, the Jesuits in Asia, the story that was told of them, and has been told for a long time since the, the 16th century, actually, is one that begins with Francis Xavier uh, and has its heroic dimensions. Until the middle of the 20th century, one of the biggest lines in this story is the heroism of the missionaries that they suffered uh, in uh, dangerous circumstances in order to spread the gospel. And there's a very strong hagiographic dimension of uh, the story that dominated the early scholarship on the mission. What happened there? Uh, how did the church expand in Asia? Who were the people that were responsible for it? What did they go through? And what signs of uh, divine approval were experienced by them in their lives and in the communities of folks that they created and who sustained Catholic churches uh, across Asia uh, uh, for many centuries. So this is sort of what 
dominated the old historiography. It shouldn't surprise us because this is precisely what we would expect from a spiritual literature. And even one produced by the Jesuits themselves, always known for their scholarship, they produced several very serious studies of the early Jesuits in Asia and Jesuits uh, traveling throughout uh, the missions around the world. Definitely put a, their focus on the, the fact that these were our virtuous men who began this global enterprise. By the time we got to the 1980s, so about uh, the uh, two generations ago, uh, scholars uh, came back upon the story of, for example, figures like Roberto Nobili, who I talk about in The Visitor, and above all, Matteo Ricci, uh, who was the founder of the China Mission. And they looked at Ricci and Nobili, as well as a third figure known as Alessandro Valignano, as three individuals who were sort of harbingers of a modern spirit, that they were very, very culturally aware when they sailed in the 16th century to Asia and saw the cultures of Asia as not something to be discarded and replaced by a version of a European culture, but rather by... Uh, a Christian culture which could be culturally Asian, that is culturally uh, South Indian, or Chinese, or Japanese, uh, in its outward in, uh, aspects, but on its in, inward aspects, it could be a Catholic culture. That is, there was a line that could divide spirituality from culture, and that the two were not mutually exclusive. And in the 80s and the 90s, we see a lot of studies, especially uh, that commemorate the arrival of Matteo Ricci in China, most famously Jonathan Spence's uh, Memory Palace of Matteo Ricci, uh, which talked about this modern spirit of Ricci and him being such an interesting figure. And it took the shift from him being a pious hero, a hero of religion, to being a hero of cultural encounter, a hero of intercultural dialogue. And so the story shifted it became more fitting for the 80s to not be such a religiously charged story and one that talked about uh, the virtues of cultural tolerance and openness to other to different cultures at that sort of dawning point of modern globalization. This has not stopped uh, in the intervening uh, four decades uh, and even recently with the commemorations of Matteo Ricci's uh, uh, death in uh, 2010, uh, we've had a lot of talk again about his visionary attitude, his acceptance of Chinese culture, his rejection of those who would reject Asian cultures, uh, and uh, in the virtue, uh, or excuse me, following the virtue of tolerance, his desire to understand other cultures. So that's sort of how the story has been told. But there, it, as much as in the first uh, scholarship, we could say there was a, bit, a little bit too much desire to believe the pious uh, histories. In the second, there's another pious history that also deserves a, a critical challenge. And that critical challenge comes from the fact that, although it would be nice for us to think that Matteo Ricci 400 years ago was a man who had a spirit much like ours, that's a bit of a simplistic story. And so in my analysis here, and what I try to do in this book, is to ask those questions about those people who lived in Ricci's time. Again, uh, folks like Andre Palmero, who was a contemporary of Matteo Ricci and of Valignano and of Roberto Di Novoli, who uh, the third of whom actually appears in the book. Uh, those figures, how they dealt with other people living alongside of them who might not have uh, either been famous because of their attitudes of tolerance 
though keep in mind that that attitude of tolerance is perhaps slightly overstated uh, in a lot of the historiography. And also, if there were people who did not agree with the Ricci's and the Nobili's and the Valignano's, why did they not? Uh, what was uh, anti-modern, if you will, about their attitudes, given that the folks who have talked about modernity have insisted that Ricci was sort of like a modern figure in his attitudes? Well, what about the other people? Were they not modern as well? Were they not his contemporaries? Right. And I, I think this is one thing that makes this such a, a strong book, because it's not it, it is on one sense a fascinating biography of a particular person, but it touches on all these these really fascinating um, issues. Great. This is why uh, I enjoyed writing this, because it's not because I want to demolish the notion that has been created of uh, the early Jesuits. Far from it. Uh, indeed, I wrote a large biography about them and uh, accompanied by another book about them. Right. Uh, but I would like to see them in their context. I'd like to understand them in their time, in the debates that they had, rather than seeing them as figures out of time who are similar to us. No, they're figures who were similar to the folks that they lived with. If they had arguments, it was with other contemporaries, not with the folks of the past, of their past, or the folks of our present. So I'm most interested in this biography of Andre Palmero, looking at someone who was part of these debates, but who not isn't, isn't taken as being a patron saint of uh, cultural accommodation or modern tolerance. Uh, not because he wasn't tolerant, and we'll come to whether or not he was later on, but because he's not known for that. He's not the pious hero of a different age. Right. So could you tell us in a bit, a little bit about who Andre Palmero was, what position he held in the Society of Jesus, and why does he deserve his own book? Okay. Andre Palmero is a, a figure who, I must say, before I started writing this book and doing the research for it, I would not have considered a terribly important person. But that's the whole point. The point is that he's not a very important person. He doesn't, he isn't a mission founder. He isn't a person who reshapes dramatically uh, the history of uh, Catholicism in Asia. He doesn't necessarily fundamentally shake the foundations of the story that we've received. However, he does challenge it in several key ways because he speaks with his own voice. He speaks in his letters, and here is sort of the key of why uh, I wanted to write a biography of Andre Palomero. He wrote a lot of letters, and he addressed them to the superior general of the Society of Jesus, so the general of the Jesuits in Rome, in the first person. I think this. I think this. I saw this. I went to this place. That voice, that personal voice, is very, very important in the context of scholarship on the Society of Jesus, especially in the missions, which tends to be written about as if the Jesuits are a force which produces things, rather than a group of men. And so my goal in writing about Andre Palmero was to pick a person who didn't have such a dominating personality that he would be considered a one-off in this story. He's not Matteo Ricci. He's not a guy who makes the heroic gesture. He's a guy who shows up afterwards and says, was that heroic gesture really that heroic? Was it that useful? Was it something that we should continue to do? Should we make more gestures like this? Or should we consider that to be an aberration? That's, I think, a very important question. So what Andre Palmero is in this story is the visitor. It's a strange title, but it is an ecclesiastical title from uh, the 16th century. And even before there were uh, ecclesiastical visitors, he's basically an inspector. His job is to go to inspect in person the missions. So what his job 
requires him to do is to leave his settings in Western Europe, to sail to India first, then later to China, to actually go to the mission fields and see what the missionaries are doing in person, to make sure that they are being Jesuits. And this may sound strange, like a strange task, but that's precisely what his task was. He knew from Jesuit life in Europe. He had spent 30 years living in Jesuit colleges in Portugal, which were among the largest Jesuit colleges anywhere in Europe. And of course, there are Jesuit colleges in the time that he lived in the late 16th century, uh, in Spain, in Portugal, in Italy, in Germany, in France, in the Netherlands, all throughout Western Europe, there are Jesuit colleges uh, on the Catholic side of the religious divide. And what Andre Palmero represents is someone who is intimately familiar with the workings of a very, very big college. He spends those 30 years at the College of Coimbra in Portugal, which has on the order of 200 Jesuits living in it. So he knows from our communities, as they would say, our schools. And the point that he does, that he seeks to uh, investigate overseas is how much do the things that the Jesuits in Asia do, how much do they reflect what Jesuit means in Europe? Because that's the model that they're seeking to work off of. So the Jesuit missionaries who head off to the far corners of Japan, China, or India need to remain faithful to that community spirit, and that's what Palmero knows. It's not all the local things that are created by a preacher and his Christians in an exotic setting. It is how much is that preacher reflecting the nature of the Jesuits as they live their piety and their lives and their communal uh, practices back in Europe. So that's what Palmero's job is to do. After being a theologian in Europe, he gets a letter from Rome in 1617 saying, you must go to India, get on the next boat. And he takes off as inspector with a lot of powers. That is, he has the power to dismiss men from the Society of Jesus. He has the power to move them around from one mission station to another. He has the power to request new missionaries from, uh, from Europe and then dispose of them where he will. He can uh, reorganize their finances. He can do what he needs to do to ensure that they remain faithful to this notion of what does it mean to belong to the Society of Jesus. They would have used the phrase, and they use it over and over again, nuestro modo de proceder, which means our way of proceeding. That is, the way we do things. And what Palmero's task is to do is to make sure that we do things the way we do things. Does that make sense? Well, that makes perfect sense. Um, so, yeah, they, the Jesuits are spread out everywhere. Um, they're trying to figure out how to deal with these different cultures. Someone has to make sure that they don't deal, uh, become... So much like those cultures, they forget to be Jesuit. Precisely. And the thing that makes this difficult in the missionary context, and here is one of the reasons why I was so interested in writing this book, is because one of the big questions is, what does it mean to be a Jesuit? If I asked you, what does it mean to be a Benedictine? You would say it, would, it means to live in a monastery. It means to sing the canonical hours. It means to participate in certain work activities and those be linked to certain prayer activities, which are typically communal activities. If I asked you, what does it mean to be a Jesuit? You might say, well, maybe it means to teach or maybe it means to preach the gospel. Maybe it means to be a street preacher. Uh, it means lots of different things, but they knew what it meant. And the question is, how do you then take folks who sail to the far end of the world, who are living by themselves 
in China, largely, or in pairs, and replicate in a pair of people, that is, two people living together, or a trio, or even a, one Jesuit living by himself, how do you replicate by yourself the forms of communal life that you had when you lived with 199 other Jesuits? That's sort of one of the big questions. And because when we say, and historians say, the Jesuits, they tend to have in their minds this notion that the Jesuits do things in all the same way. But what I want to show in this book, and one of the reasons why it's a biography, is because Palmero says, I do things in this way, I see things, and that other guy, he sees things in this way, and this third Jesuit, he sees things in a different way. Oh, so I break down with this analysis the sort of ironclad unity of the Jesuits by insisting that they are a group of men who at times go in different directions. And the challenge of holding them together is the challenge that Andre Palmero faces when he arrives in Asia in 1617 until his death in Macau in 1635. You had mentioned that he basically worked at a at a college how does how does his life prepare him when he spends 30 years at this one college how does it prepare him to go to india and china well this is uh, sort of the the big uh question of the early section of the book and the book has two halves and the first half turks talks in the first chapters about his life in portugal keeping in mind that he only left for uh, for India in 1617. He was born in 1569. So he's actually an old man by the time he leaves for Asia by contemporary standards. Uh, this makes that early period very important. But what is important in the early period is its routine nature, this communal life, the things that we do as a community, and the paths of Jesuits in that communal life. So, for example, we see him going from a young boy taking classes in grammar at a Jesuit school in Lisbon to joining the Society of Jesus and being sent to a novitiate in Coimbra. And in Coimbra, he lives from 1584 until 1613. He spends a very long time uh, in Coimbra living in this one college, but at different levels of uh, Jesuit life. That is, he is a novice, then he becomes a teacher of Latin, then he proceeds to study philosophy, then he turns to teaching philosophy, then he is sent to study uh, moral theology, and then he is sent to study uh, speculative theology, and then he winds up teaching speculative theology. So he must have been very good at this theology, and we have only brief marks in uh, contemporary sources that say why he was moving uh, from one job to another, one position to another, and most of them seem to follow sort of a standard track, that this is the way you got an education in the Society of Jesus until you reach about age 25 or 30, by which time you'd have sort of your established ministry, and that's precisely what happens to Palmero. He becomes a man who is uh, indicated for uh, the teaching of theology, teaching in the college context. And he pursues that. Actually, he teaches theology, speculative theology, at Coimbra as the number two to Francisco Suarez, who was one of the most famous uh, neo-Thomas uh, of the early modern period. Palmero is number two. He teaches the other courses uh, at the Jesuit college at the highest level of theology instruction. And he teaches them for several years. 
It would have been great if we would have all of his class notes to say, when does he actually engage with the issues that he will engage with in the mission field? But we don't see this material in the sources that we have from that time. It actually looks like he gave sort of standard readings of Thomistic theology as he made his way through the teaching of different levels of theology in the College of Coimbra. So we really don't know how he got the training. What it seems to be, uh, and in looking at the different careers of different Jesuits who also went to India uh, at this time, or to the missions at this time, is that he was a man who had what was considered to be a very good education for dealing with any speculative issues, such as those as might be encountered in the mission field. Now, our understanding of speculative issues nowadays seems to demand more, well, he doesn't speak any Asian languages, he doesn't know anything about Asian cultures, they wouldn't have understood the question that way. They would have said, look, we're looking at questions of ritual and behavior and the sacraments and the understanding of sacramental theology. Those issues are things that are considered in a more anthropological sense, in a broader sense, than we see than merely speculative theological issues. They see them in the, they would have considered them in the realms of practice. Well, the realm of practice is precisely what the missionaries deal with. And at a certain point, you have to realize where is the dividing line speculatively between what people do and what they believe what their culture says that they should do and what they should believe and how those reflect beliefs. Those types of questions would be something that a speculative theologian coming out of this neo-Thomistic school would have understood. Now, doesn't seem very practical, but his practical experience came with that long period he spent living in Jesuit colleges, observing the passage of time and the communal routines in those colleges, plus a three-year period at the end of his stay in Portugal, where he served as the rector of the College of Braga uh, in northern Portugal. And there he learned how to manage a college. He learned the financial side of these things and the political side of organizing a group of Jesuits and how to deal with people outside the order in an important place, why Braga had an archbishop and several other uh, religious houses. Uh, Palmera would have been in contact with those folks. So could you tell us then, you, you mentioned he, he got, he's, as a theologian, he's trained to deal with speculative issues. He gets sent to India, uh, taken out of his college, sent to India. What kind of issues does he face there? When he gets to India, and indeed one of the reasons why he's sent to India in 1617 is because there's a major crisis going on among the Jesuits and other religious orders in India at precisely that moment. Indeed, it's been going on for nearly... Uh, 10 years by the time uh, Palmero gets to India. And this is, has to do with the figure of Roberto Nobili, who is a Jesuit who works in southern India, in Madurai, which is a uh, city uh, in inland southern India, far from the coastal regions where the Portuguese colonies are. But it is, in church organization, part of the bishopric of Cochin in southern India, and subject, subjected to the authority, the ecclesiastical authority, of the bishops in Cochin. So the Jesuits have an uh, institutional issue here that emerges from Roberto Novoli's decision to pursue his mission in a different way. What is the different way, and what does this have to deal, uh, do with? Well, what he decides to do after he becomes 
sent to the mission at Madurai, where there had been another Jesuit there, a gentleman by the name of Gonzalo Fernandez. Gonzalo Fernandez, dressed like a Jesuit living in India, he had a black uh, suit and a black cloak, and he would use uh, that visual presentation to try to preach Christianity and gain converts. And he had very little success. And one of the things that his younger colleague, Roberto Nobili, decided to do was to change his clothes, to say, you know what, doing things in this way, where I look like I belong on the coast of India, where the Portuguese are, is not attracting anyone. It needs to be done in a different way. We need to do things in a different way. And so what he decided to do was to take the visual outlook, the visual aspect of Brahmins, that is the highest of the castes in southern India, and make himself into what he described as a Christian Brahmin. That is, he decided to shave his head in the way that the Brahmins did. He decided to wear clothes like those worn by the Brahmin caste. Remember, the Brahmin caste of Hinduism, as it is practiced in southern India at this time, and wear a thread of uh, three strands that uh, went over the shoulder that the Brahmins used as well, as well as to use sandalwood paste on his forehead. Now, you can imagine visually the shock that this would produce among the Jesuits, seeing one of their own say, no, I'm actually a Brahmin. I'm a Christian Brahmin. And I can do all of the ritual things that the Brahmins do and behave like they do because my theology is different. But my outlook, that is the way I present myself, doesn't need to be like my friend here who wears a black robe. And no one will go near him for fear of being, uh, of losing caste status, of being cast, cast out, forgive me, uh, forgive the pun. Uh, of their caste standing because of their desire to associate with this individual. So what Nobili did is he said, actually, within Hindu culture, within Indian culture, we can separate what is political, and in his view, cutting your hair in a certain way, wearing the sandalwood paste, using this thread. These are all political signs, much like a nobleman in Europe might wear a sword. Well, they wore these clothes. And those were political things. They were not religious things. Whereas uh, his uh, adversary, or eventually his adversary in Madurai, uh, Fernandez looked at him and said, you look like a member of the Hindu priesthood. Therefore, you are preaching idolatry in this context instead of preaching Christianity. So the question that Palmero had to deal with when he arrived was the dispute between these two individuals in how much can Christianity have an Indian look and still be Christian and how much does it need to look European or what things do we have to say about the broad variety within Christianity in order for it to include, for example, the Thomas Christians of southern India or the Ethiopian Christians of uh, Ethiopia, uh, of East Africa, or Roman Catholics, or Greek Orthodox Christians. All of those different Christians are all Christians, but they dress in different ways. They look differently. Some of their uh, church rituals are different. Could it be that, that nobility could create an indigenous kind of Christianity that looked like uh, other forms of holiness as they were understood, in Indian culture, but not 
actually theologically be identical to Hinduism. He's not talking about uh, doing puja, for example. He's not talking about in his missions, uh, you know, thinking about Brahman and Atman. He's thinking about uh, Christ, but Christ within a different, as a teacher within a different cultural context, one that is not, that doesn't impinge on its religious nature, its theological nature. This, as you might imagine, produced a tremendous uproar among colonial authorities in the Portuguese colonies where uh, Palmero arrived in the city of Goa, as well as in Cochin, because you had some missionaries, among the Jesuits especially, who said, actually, that's fine. Uh, so long as theologically he's not innovating, he can dress however he wants to dress and use whatever texts are necessary to convince Brahmins that he's saying something very useful to them and that they might want to be Christians. <clears throat> and others said, no, if you dress like them, you are saying the other things that they do, those theological things, those religious behaviors, are legitimate as well. Something that did not sit well with uh, a large majority of the clergy within uh, the um, uh, colonial cities of Portuguese India, and even among the Jesuits themselves. Keep in mind, uh, Fernandes was a Jesuit, and he became the great adversary of uh, Nobili. Palmero stepped into the middle of this as theologian who is who has thought about issues relating to the uh, dividing mark between culture and politics and religion, uh, and would have to investigate the matter himself. And that's what he had to do immediately after getting off uh, the boat from uh, Europe. He had to try to find a way between the different warring parties. And this was not a good situation to be in. He actually came into a very delicate situation because now as a very high representative within the Society of Jesus, he had to deal with the Archbishop of Goa, who was the Archbishop Premat of Goa uh, and of all of India, saying to him that the Jesuits were promoting idolatry. So this is a delicate uh, political matter. And the interesting thing about Palmero is that he gets off uh, the boat and interviews uh, Nobili and is convinced by Nobili that indeed there is plenty of ways to understand those outward aspects as being mere political symbols, not religious symbols. And therefore, his mission is legitimate. And that Palmero, with his weight as theologian and representative of the superior general, will actually be on the side of Nobili. This is very important here because it suggests that there are fights within the Jesuits, that also the Jesuits are actually taking a view that is, hey, this is an acceptable position. And Palmero, here coming from Portugal, and in the historiography, we have a lot of discussion of Italians being open, Roberto Nobili being an Italian, and Iberians being close-minded. And Palmero is your standard Portuguese theologian coming and saying, you know what, I agree with my Italian brethren here, my Italian subordinate, because indeed he was subordinate to Palmero, who could have crushed his mission and said, you're done. Uh, you're being sent back to Cochin to teach Latin uh, or do something else. Uh, this gesture, this power that Palmero had makes him a very important figure. And curiously, in this story, we also see the Inquisition in Goa being split on the matter. One Inquisitor denouncing uh, Nobili, and another Inquisitor being on Palmero and Nobili's side in this story. So 
There are big theological questions that are handled immediately when Palmero arrives. And he deals with them in the colonial center. And then soon afterwards, he goes to Madurai. He walks to Madurai to actually investigate by himself whether or not what they're doing is not just wonderful in theory, but not wonderful in practice. Right. And so... How do people react to his decision? Does this, you know, does does this lead to him being fired, or do people think that um, he acted properly? Uh, those who supported the position clearly uh, <laughs> clap for him and are on his side. But one of the interesting things that had happened is that this, uh, the debates in Goa that uh, Palmero had to be a part of, that involved the archbishop, indeed involved two archbishops. Uh, one of whom was a Jesuit who was the Archbishop of Cranganore in southern India, who was on the side of Nobili, was a Catalan who was on the side of Nobili, uh, and the Archbishop of Goa, who was not uh, on uh, their side in this. Uh, they had received orders from the papal curia in Rome saying, you must debate this issue and you must send us the outcome of your debate written up in uh, polemic form here, as we would do, so that we will evaluate this here in Rome. So there wasn't a final issue taken. And indeed, in 1623, indeed, after uh, several of the participants in this uh, debate had actually died, including the Archbishop of Goa, uh, the uh, papacy actually rules in favor of nobili and says those symbols are indeed only political symbols. They're not religious symbols. That is sandalwood paste, the tuft of hair that the Brahmins use, and the thread that the Brahmins wear. That those are, those are just political symbols. They have nothing to do with religion. And so they're legitimate uh, for Christian use. Uh, and so this is a this is an affair which is ongoing and will continue to go on through the story. And one of the things about talking about Palmero is that he comes into this story and then the story moves off to Rome and then comes back to him uh, later on, uh, five years later when he's back in Goa uh, as visitor of all of the uh, Indian provinces of the two Jesuit provinces in India. So, and you, you show this very well in your book, how Pomero is a very careful man. He's a very considerate man. He, he really does a good job trying to listen to everyone and give out thoughtful decisions. Why, when you have someone that's doing such a good job, why do you send them from India on a dangerous journey to East Asia? Well, before he gets to East Asia, we have to sort of think for a second about what his job was. And in right. the book, I say that uh, this is a man who had half a world of cares, Quite literally, because the Jesuits organized their affairs in Asia, and I've organized the book in the same way, uh, into provinces. And their provinces were most tightly organized in Europe. Outside of Europe, those provinces were huge spaces. So, for example, his first assignment is in the, pro the province of Malabar. Malabar is in southern India. It's the southern, southwestern coast of India. The province of Malabar included the Spice Islands all the way uh, in modern-day Indonesia. So you could imagine the space that is encompassed by the Spice Islands, Malacca on the Malay Peninsula, Bengal in northern-day northern modern India, and all the way down to Sri Lanka and southern uh, India. That huge space was his first assignment that he had for three years. Then he had... For the next three years that he spent uh, in India, he was visitor of the province of Goa and the province of Malabar. And the province of Goa included missions to Tibet, uh, 
to the Mughal court in northern India, the missions to Ethiopia, as well as the missions in Mozambique. So his concerns stretched from the Cape of Good Hope to the Spice Islands, which is about 7,000 miles. It's a huge space that he had to be concerned with Jesuits throughout. Uh, and that concern led him to, be, to have to look into lots of different directions. The problem is he had so much power during that time to run Jesuit affairs and issue rules and move men around and reallocate funds as he did during his time living in Cochin, in Goa, and his movement around that space because he did, as I said, walk to, uh, <clears throat> he walked to southern India, and then he sailed to Sri Lanka. He walked along the coast of Sri Lanka, sailed back along the coast of East India, and then back down uh, up to Madurai, and then eventually got uh, to Goa, where he had to coordinate affairs in Ethiopia and sending uh, Jesuit missionaries to the mission in Ethiopia. Because he had so much power and, was, and so much responsibility, even the Jesuits said, you know what, we can't have someone have this job for too long. And he sort of faced the problem that is faced by department chairs and universities. What do you do after you've been chair for five years? Do you go back to being a, a full professor or an associate professor? It's tough to do that. Once you get into administration, how do you back down from administration? And so Rome decided, well, let's send him somewhere else in Asia. He seems to have good health. Uh, we'll send him to the province of Japan, which is how the uh, Jesuit Curia described East Asia. And so he was received an order from Rome saying, go to Macau, sail uh, around the world and take charge of those missions. And indeed, that is what happened. Why did they do this? Because here is a man who is very talented, who's done a good job. We like him. Uh, we need his help somewhere else, so we'll send him there. And that's how they did it. They could have conceivably recalled him back to Europe, uh, but it was difficult to get good men who could handle being in these harsh conditions of sailing around the world uh, for a, a long time, and they chose to keep him in, uh, in Asia by sending him to East Asia in 1625. Right. And he, he's going to be stationed in Macau for the most part? Yeah, he leaves uh, Goa and he sails to Macau where he spends uh, the last years of his life. So he arrives there uh, in 1626 and then he will spend until uh, 1635 when he dies uh, in Macau. Whereas he had been a uh, visitor in uh, the province of Malabar for three years, then province of Malabar and the province of Goa for another three years. He will be visitor of the province of Japan until his death. So it, uh, over almost nine years, he will hold that position. Uh, the Jesuits liked to change these positions, to rotate folks through this position uh, of visitor because, again, the person had tremendous power. Uh, but it was not always easy to do that, to get a good candidate who didn't seem to be too beholden uh, to any specific faction of Jesuits or to any specific uh, group of folks, uh, either where they were assigned or back home, so that they would be true independent voice. It was difficult to get someone like that, to send them to the other side of the world. When they realized in Rome that they had a good man for the job, they made use of him. So, um, I mean, someone listening to this who's, who's not too familiar with, um, with what's going on at this time, he's the visitor to Japan, but he never goes to Japan. Why is that? Well, the province that the Jesuits have in East Asia encompasses Southeast Asia, 
Uh, it encompasses, so that's modern-day Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos. Uh, it encompasses China, uh, the Ming Empire. It encompasses Korea, though Korea is not really a part of our story. Uh, and it encompasses Japan. And it's called the province of Japan because Japan is where the first missions are founded and where the Jesuit missions really take off in the late 16th century. As a result, because Japan is the most important place uh, and China is sort of an afterthought, uh, the province is called the province of Japan. Uh, but Palmero won't actually go there because by the time he gets to East Asia, it's too dangerous to go to Japan. He can't go there practically because the missionaries in Japan are facing a very, very violent wave of persecution. And in that violent wave of persecution, uh, it is not a good place for a Jesuit inspector to go and go from place to place. First of all, because even writing down where the Jesuit residences are in Japan would be enough to bring the wrath of their persecutors onto them. Because the state of Japan, that is the uh, Japanese military hegemons, at this time, who are trying to unify Japan politically, are not brooking any resistance either from independent lords, that is secular lords, or religious figures in Japan, whether they be Buddhist or Shinto figures, they're also coming under the heel of the uh, resurgent Japanese state. And the Jesuits are religious figures just like those Buddhist communities. They are also being brought under the heel of the Japanese state. And in the case of uh, Japan, what we see is a very explicit anti-Christian persecution because Christianity is being is, is considered as something that is from outside of Japan. It is not something that is native to Japan, and as a result, it needs to be utterly destroyed. And when we say utterly destroyed, the brutality of these persecutions is dire. Uh, we'll see something of that uh, in the near future. There's a, a movie being made of the novel, famous novel, it's called Silence, which is about these persecutions, which talks about the real br brutal tortures that the Jesuits underwent, as well as their Christians, who weren't summarily executed for being Christians uh, in uh, Japan in uh, the period after 1614, when the uh, priests are, when all Roman Catholic priests are expelled from the uh, islands, uh, of Japan until pretty much the end of uh, the Christian presence in Japan at about 1635-1640. Well, then Palmero faces a really daunting task um, trying to, you know, what, what do you do um, in these kinds of circumstances? How does he try and help um, the church and the Jesuits in Japan? Well, he's in Macau, which is the marshalling point for the whole raison, uh, raison d'etre for the Jesuits in Japan. It was the place where Portuguese merchants outfitted their ships of buying Chinese silk and sailing it to Japan, which they would there trade for Japanese silver. So that trade axis is moving a lot of ships back and forth. And the persecution of the Christians comes in while that trade is still going on. So there are ships going back and forth. The problem is, is that the customs officials in Japan are very savvy about how to detect how the Jesuits are communicating with their uh, Christians who are living underground in Japan. And so what Palmero's challenge is, how do I send men 
to help out their brethren in Japan. How's, how do I send more priests, given that a lot of priests have been killed? And how do I send money over there? And how do we keep the lines of communication open? So, for example, the lines of communication have become very, very difficult. Uh, he talks about sending letters tucked into the sewing of uh, shoes that the missionaries would wear. They would go dressed in camouflage, that is, dressed as, uh, as traders, as merchants, and they would have letters sewn into their clothing or into their shoes. Or they had letters that had lead pl uh, plates uh, uh, put around them so that in case they saw a customs official coming and they were still on the ship, they could throw them over, overboard of the ship and the letters would sink to the bottom. Right? So all the evidence of this contraband attempt at communicating with uh, the underground, the Christian underground in Japan, uh, would be safeguarded. That is, they wouldn't know where the folks would be. Uh, he has to devise systems for writing in code so that in case the letters are intercepted, what, do they, what they say in them is not readily uh, apparent to anybody, uh, to any random reader of the letters. Uh, he needs to send money. How do you send money to someone who you can't really get in touch with, where every gesture, every uh, action is scrutinized? So it becomes very difficult. When we have Portuguese merchants, we have Japanese Christians who are living in Nagasaki, for example, who have contacts to the Christians in the underground and who are funneling them money, who are funneling them correspondence. And Palmero has to coordinate these things. But it's very, very difficult here. He has to get some of his subordinates who want to go to Japan because now we have the opportunity for martyrdom. He has to get them to grow their beards out and try to disguise themselves as Chinese merchants so that they can slip on into uh, Japan unnoticed. It's very difficult to do this, but this is what they try to do. Well, excellent. So, I mean, and in the end, unfortunately, I, I mean, I, I kind of know the end of the story. It, it just, it's not enough. No, it's not enough. Uh, and uh, at, uh, at the end of my book, I talk about uh, the last missionaries in Japan, uh, Sebastian Ferreira, uh, Vieira, excuse me, Sebastian Vieira and Cristóvão Ferreira, uh, a tale of two missionaries who both leave, uh, who both knew Palmero and who both have different uh, ends to their stories. One, Vieira, winds up being tortured until he dies, suspended over a pit uh, in Edo, that is in the, the, the Shogunal capital. And the other is Cristóvão Ferreira, who is subjected to the same torture, but decides to become an apostate. Uh, decides to say, okay, I give up. I'm no longer a Christian. I'll become a Buddhist and lives out his life the next uh, 15 years of his life or 18 years of his life in Japan as a Buddhist, as far as we know. Uh, the sources suggesting that uh, he, and in his despair at the torture uh, that he underwent, which was uh, incredibly brutal, uh, giving up and saying, I can't be uh, a Christian anymore. Not just a Jesuit, not a professed Jesuit, not a priest who had spent 19 years underground in Japan, but even a Christian. He can't do it anymore because of the, uh, the horribleness of the torture. And indeed, the book begins with a vignette from Ferreira, who is contacted after his apostasy. And the first question that he asks to the Portuguese merchants who go and talk to him after his apostasy is, where is Andre Palmero? And it, started a, a, it was a good place to start the book to evoke, why is this guy who decided as, after so much torture to give up on Christianity, the first question he asked to the first person who comes to ask him is, where is my former boss? Where is the man <laughs> 
who wrote me those letters trying to tell me, don't give up, don't give up, don't give up. To which the answer is, Palmero basically went into a fit of fasting and weakened himself so much during that uh, in order to try and disprove through divine intervention the news of uh, Fajera's apostasy that he died uh, weakened by, uh, by those mortifications. So the story is not a good one. It doesn't have a happy end. Uh, but uh, it is part of the story, the extreme conditions of the persecutions in Japan, uh, which sort of hung over uh, these missions, and indeed would hung over, hang over the Jesuit story in East Asia well on into the 19th century, and indeed some of the last of these uh, canonizations were done for the martyrs in Japan by Pope Benedict uh, XVI, so just now, in the past decade or so, so we're still living the story. Uh, that Palmero was uh, engaged in during his lifetime in the 17th century. Right. Yeah. Just as an aside, I I, I visited Japan over the summer and and visit with uh, got to meet some uh, people connected to the martyrdoms there and they'd done like uh, artwork and things. It's really fascinating, but also very uh, very sad. Oh, it's uh, um, it's it's brutal and it is very yeah. very violent. The story is one of tremendous violence, but you, you leads you to ask then, who would want to put themselves in this position? And how do you deal with people who want to be martyrs? This is what Palmero right. had to do on an everyday basis. He had to sort of wonder about how how do you go on? How do you how do you manage folks that have a death wish? Uh, and how do you channel that wish in a way that is uh, spiritually beneficial. Well, you can do it in a pastoral way, which is what he tried to encourage those going to Japan. Look, make contact with the Christians. Give them uh, the sucker of the sacraments before they face these final trials. Um, encourage them to be strong in their faith. That's a, that's a, that's a hard bargain to, to make and a, a difficult task. Uh, so that, that is sort of the intensity that comes out at the end of uh, Palmero's story in, in the book. Right. Well, and that serves as, I think, kind of a transition because, I mean, one thing you, you make a very um, excellent point about Palmero is the guy, he, he's a faithful man, but he also knows that there's material limitations to things. And he's got these, these he doesn't have a whole lot of missionaries. And he's got this mission that unfortunately is dying in Japan, but he's got one that's starting to grow and develop more in China, but, but that also faces its own situ uh, difficulties. So it makes sense to kind of focus more on it and move some of that manpower there. So I wonder, could you tell us a little bit about the, the difficulties that um, the China mission faces um, and how Pal Palmero tries to deal with them? Well, the China mission began as an offshoot of the mission to Japan. Basically, the guys who were in Japan realized that, well, the cultural heart uh, and to some degree the political heart of East Asia was not Japan, but rather China. And so if we could convert the Chinese then everybody else in the cultural region of East Asia would follow along. This was their notion. Uh, and so they started this mission in the 1580s, and Matteo Ricci uh, is uh, the founder of this mission. And he lives until 1610, and he manages by dint of his personality and his capacity to learn Chinese uh, to make very convincing translations of Christian texts into Chinese and to present a version of Christianity uh, in China. And he makes his way all the way to the court of uh, the Ming emperors at Beijing. And during that, uh, and during his lifetime, he is encouraged to do this by Alessandro Valignano, the 
visitor who is one of Palmero's predecessors. The thing is, by the time we get to Palmero's day, that is the late 1620s, no outside inspector has been into China to see what the missionaries are doing. They have an idea about China because the Jesuits write books about it, and famously in 1616 we have a very famous book of Matteo Ricci's diaries rendered into Latin by uh, Nicola Trigo, who is one of uh, his early uh, helpers. Uh, and so we have a account of China and what the Jesuits are doing there and a story of Ricci's progress through China, but there's no outside inspection by a Jesuit superior. So what's going on in China seems promising. It seems like they're putting a lot of effort into it. It's very costly, however. The Jesuits realize that it costs a lot of money to live with inside, uh, or inside the Ming Empire. And there are a couple of dubious things going on among the missionaries that are sort of crying out for an inspection. If nothing else, because inspections are a salutary exercise that uh, all Jesuits should submit to because they live within a religious order. They don't live in a loose, uh, loosely uh, comprised group of men, but they live in men who have common practices, common devotions, and common rules. And so we should make sure periodically that we're all on track, that we're doing things in the right way. And so Palmero, while he's fretting over Japan and wondering what to do there, hearing that there might be chance, a chance in China for things to change direction there, for, their, for that mission to grow, he decides to go into China, to make a trip through China. And he has an opportunity to do this when, uh, thanks to the uh, incursions of Manchu armies over the northern borders of China, um, the Ming Empire and the Ming emperors request that the city of Macau send uh, cannon makers and uh, artillery men into China to help them use Western artillery to fight against the Manchus. And this embassy, this military embassy, uh, provides the cover for uh, Palmero to go into China under the radar of the uh, Ming border guards, and so he can get into China, and then once inside China, can go to the different residences that the Jesuits have made and attempt to get some answer to some of his questions. The first of which is, okay, Matteo Ricci said he was going to dress like a Chinese intellectual, much as we have Roberto Novelli dressing like a, uh, a, a Brahmin holy man. In southern India, in China, we have uh, our uh, protagonist, Matteo Ricci, the founder of this mission, insisting that we need to dress like Chinese uh, literati. And so we have the uh, Jesuit missionaries now, after uh, Ricci's death, all dressing like this and occasionally using silk robes because, well, that's what Chinese literati wear. They wear silk robes, so you need to wear those. Palmero will ask the question, do you need to wear those? Because in the rules of the Society of Jesus, it says very explicitly, we don't have a specific habit, but what we will not wear is silk. Okay, so they're wearing silk. Another question is, it costs a lot of money to keep these residences open, but we're never hearing thousands and thousands of converts. We're hearing news that there are 20 converts, 30 converts, 40 converts. But if you, for example, get the news from Vietnam, where in the 1620s, Palmero is uh, crucial in uh, sending men to Vietnam to create those missions there, uh, they report tens of thousands of converts every year. So with all of this 
effort with all of these sort of dubious practices that the Jesuits are engaging in in China, masquerading as mandarins, dressing up in silk on occasion. Why are there not lots more uh, converts? Where are the converts? And so Palmero goes into China to answer those questions. Uh, why does it take so long? Why, what needs to be done? Is this a good strategy or not? This uh, strategy has been called by historians, and remember I've mentioned Matteo Ricci before, it's been called accommodation, cultural accommodation. And one of the reasons why I wanted to write the study of Palmero is because it specifically addresses the question of cultural accommodation. Because after Ricci's death in 1610, we have a period in which the Jesuits themselves, especially those who are kicked out of Japan and who are living in Macau, right on the doorstep of China, uh, look into China and see what their brethren are doing and say, there's a lot of dubious things going on in there. These guys have decided to go too much over into cultural accommodation. They have not only started dressing like Chinese, but they have translated terms into Chinese like the name of God. In Japan, very quickly in the 16th century, the Jesuits realized we can't use Japanese terms because those terms are freighted with uh, either Buddhist or Shinto uh, or Confucian overtones and Confucian being Neo-Confucian overtones that they have some religious charge to them. So we have to invent new terms. And so in Japan, they use the term Deusu to designate Deus, that is God, right? In the case of China, Matteo Ricci said, no, let's use this term Tien, which is found in the Confucian text, which seems to address uh, the uh, <clears throat> person of God. Well, that's a dubious proposition. And the guys who lived in Japan, the Jesuits who lived in Japan, they knew from uh, East Asian thought and East Asian texts. And they said, no, 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 no. That is unacceptable. So Palmero had to go into China to sort of uh, weigh these questions and see if there was too much accommodation going on. And that question of accommodation becomes one of the most important things. Because what I go to, into in this book is his reasons for saying, is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? Are certain aspects good? Are certain aspects bad? Are certain aspects dubious or certain aspects legitimate for Jesuit missionaries working in this context? Right. Um, and that goes into... Um... I mean, this, there's several ways we could we could proceed from here because you know your book, it's dealing with a, this issue of accommodation and is trying to help us to better understand critiques of it. But you're also looking at this kind of issue of translation broadly conceived. Um, so I wish you could you could just um, I'll kind of leave it for you to to kind of go in the direction you think is best with that. Well, one of the big ideas that comes out of the study, and I hope will provide some food for thought for folks who are not. Uh, necessarily interested in the precise story of uh, the Jesuits in uh, East Asia or in Asia in general, is sort of the larger question of what this accommodation method meant and how they understood it. Because any effort at conversion is an effort in translation. I am changing over some aspect of my thought, my beliefs, into some other form. And that change of one place, one form to another, the transposition of the Christian message from a European cultural context into a East Asian cultural context, for example, in this case, begs questions about how do you translate? What is the best way to translate these things? And these are the issues that Palmero precisely had to deal with. And also the questions of, well, how much can be translated and how much can't be translated? 
Occasionally, we bump into words that, that translators will tell us can't be translated because they, they have too much meaning or their meanings are so culturally rooted that they really can't be brought into a different culture. And we've seen how historians of the missions uh, in the 1980s, there were some very interesting scholarship on the Jesuit mission to China, which said, really, you cannot translate Christian terms, which are rooted in Greek philosophy and in Christian theology, into the Chinese language, which simply cannot express those terms. And as a result, you can't have true conversion. And we've had a debate between theologians and scholars writing on the China mission about, no, indeed, you can do this. And uh, if nothing else, Matteo Ricci was convinced that he could do this. Well, Palmero had to check those uh, translations, not just the translation of religious authority from its European context to its Chinese context, which is indeed what the Jesuits were trying to do. They wanted to be known as men of religious authority in China. But they also didn't want to have any of the pejorative associations that contemporary Chinese intellectuals ascribe to, for example, the Buddhist clergy or the Taoist clergy, whom they look down upon very often. So in that cultural context, how do you trans make, translate authority about religion and received uh, or revealed uh, wisdom into a culture where religious practitioners aren't necessarily valued. You have to tweak your translation. You have to add, you have to subtract, you have to say, okay, we're going to look the part, but we're not going to act the part. Or we're not going to look the part, as the case may be, of religious practitioners. So we're not going to dress like Buddhist monks. We're going to dress like literati. But literati are not religious professionals, so we're going to have to create something new here. We're going to have to translate our notion of authority into a, a visual register, into an intellectual register, into a religious register in the Chinese cultural context. Now, you surely have heard the expression that uh, to translate is to betray, right? This uh, traduire e traduzire, uh, no, traduzire e traduire, I think is the expression, if you'll forgive my uh, butchering this Italian here. This notion Better than mine. <laughs> that, uh, that something is sacrificed when you translate, that's precisely what Palmero has to deal with. Should we be wearing silk? Is it really necessary? Are we a known commodity within China now in 1628, 50 years after Ricci first entered, entered China? If that's the case then we really shouldn't have to wear silk. People know us. The translation has already been done. It has been successful. Uh, in other cases, to what degree should we translate concepts into a vocabulary which might have other connotations? To what degree should we translate our whole understanding of what the Christian church is, that is, its links to European kings, uh, versus its links to uh, other political lords in East Asia, for example, the uh, emperors of the Ming Empire. How do you translate these things? How do you navigate through all of the shifting sands and of the raging currents that are associated with various different cultural forms? Because all of those things are going to be crucially important in the missionary context. And that is precisely what Palmero, who, despite the fact that he did not speak Chinese, that he did not learn Chinese, was still able to find his way among the various opinions expressed by his subordinates, who knew something about this and said, 
We have to give here and we have to take here. We have to translate this and we have to leave aside this. This translation is less problematic, less freighted with problems than this other translation which we might use. The term tien, meaning heaven, seems to be too much the material heaven and not God. Whereas Tianju, meaning Lord of Heaven, is more a expression of a personal God rather than the material, immovable heaven of the skies that move around here. So these are questions that he would have to sort of navigate. How do you get between all of these things and all of these different people who are clamoring for their position and force them to think together as Jesuits? to come together. And sometimes you have to force people. Sometimes you have to deprive them of their privileges and their capacity. Sometimes you have to move them around. Sometimes you have to yell at them. Sometimes you have to write to Rome to tell Rome to send a letter yelling at them, which is what happened in this case. And I think what is very interesting in the case of Palmero is he turns a lot of our established cliches about the Jesuits on their head. One, that they had ironclad unity. And obviously, they didn't in this context. Two, that they all obeyed Mm, they didn't all obey. Very frequently he has to deal with those who don't obey. Uh, thirdly, that Italians and Portuguese and Spaniards and Flemings all approach these questions in different ways, uh, and that those ways are coded by their national cultures, also manifestly not true. Uh, and that in order to keep this enterprise going, there has to be some fundamental unity. Well, that's something that he insists upon, and that we can't have Jesuits moving in different directions, be they in China or in India, in Vietnam, in Japan, in all of these different ways. They have to retain that sense of community spirit. I think Palmero proves that, uh, turning those pieties on their head, turning those, uh, those cliches on their head about the Jesuits, and making it a much, much more complex story than we otherwise would have had if we, th we see just Matteo Ricci is culturally open, those who follow in his footsteps uh, will be successful, those who reject his attitudes will not be successful. Uh, that's a bit of a simplistic story, despite the fact that it's been repeated over and over. Right. Um, yeah, and we're for our listeners, we're really in chapter eight here, challenging accommodation. And this, I really enjoyed your your whole book, but this part, um, I just found especially meaningful because you're 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 not only challenging these cliches about the Jesuits, but about this whole accommodationist kind of um, debate and discussion. And it's something that impacts um, what I study in in Korean Catholicism. And I was just so happy to, to see this, um, what you had written here. These were things that I wanted to say, but that I felt you said much better. Well, the, I think this, is, this book serves as an introduction. And my choice of Palmero as one figure in this is to insist that there are many voices here. And that we can't just say there was one Jesuit way of doing these, or there was the accommodation strategy, and this is what the Jesuits used. No, the Jesuits used it in a lot of different ways. Accommodation uh, during the time before Palmero's visitation is whatever Matteo Ricci and his followers seem to be doing, which is a very flimsy way of understanding this. And so what I've attempted to introduce here is, here is a voice who weighs these opinions. Here are other voices that take different texts on this question, showing that there are lots of fine gradations within the notion of accommodation, and that we have to look at this in a lot of different ways instead of saying, oh, this is the Jesuit way. No, obviously not. This isn't just the Jesuit way. And that there are contemporaries who have very good reasons, which are not simply bigoted reasons or ethnocentric reasons or Eurocentric reasons for not liking accommodation. Uh, there are reasons why they don't like that. And Palmero serves as a, 
as a check on the notion that links accommodation to virtue and rejection of accommodation to either bigotry or blinkered uh, Eurocentrism. Excellent. Well, we've taken a lot of your time, and I know that you, you had some other obligations. There were just two questions I wanted to ask. I guess my, my final question then, is, or my next to last question is, you know, we've talked a lot about Palmero. You, you've said several, uh, a lot of interesting things about him and how a study of his life contributes to our understanding of, of the Jesuit missions, especially in uh, Asia. I wonder then, could you tell us, a, is there anything more you'd like to add about what he tells us about the early modern Jesuit missionary enterprise? In, in general terms, he tells us that it's not as unified as we might suspect. It's not as linear as we might suspect. Sometimes there are dead ends that even someone who brings to bear on these missions a very strong administrative hand still has to work with the men he has to work with. Uh, that is, these were humans. They weren't saints, necessarily. Uh, they're not paragons of virtue all the time. They spend a lot of time arguing with each other uh, and not getting along. Uh, and despite the fact that uh, several years ago someone asked me, uh, well, uh, you seem to only want to say bad things about the Jesuits. No, I don't want to say bad things about the Jesuits, but I want to make them sound like they're real humans, that they, their response in certain situations is can be very varied. That's, they can be folks who I don't necessarily recognize, that is, the folks who will themselves to be martyred in Japan, or they can be the folks who say, look, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be in this context. I wish I could go back. Who complain about the routines, who complain about some of the strangeness of the context that they're in. Uh, and I think it's very useful in uh, thinking about the Jesuit missionaries to know that those types of folks are they're the part and parcel of these missions. They are throughout these missions, that that variety is forever present, and that we can't think, oh, the Jesuits were like this, that if we have this archetypical Jesuit, we can think, oh, that, that's what the Jesuits are like. No, not necessarily. Uh, despite the fact that they used common uniform, they had lots of different ways of thinking about all of these different challenges. And I think Palmero permits us to think about that because he says, I saw this, I think this, I understand this in this way. And his voice, assuming I, where he has detractors and he has supporters, suggests to us that this is he's like us in that he is a man who confronts different issues, and he is a man who has different reactions. Sometimes we approve of his reactions, but we don't look to him necessarily as a paragon. We look to him perhaps as another human who had human experiences. And I think that's very, very important for us in thinking about the missions, that we push aside that notion of this as an exercise in hagiography and look at it as one as an exercise in understanding the humans living in this spiritual environment, in this uh, political context, in this uh, religious atmosphere of the early 17th century, or even broad, more broadly, the early modern period. Excellent. Well, again, uh, congratulations on a wonderful book. And then my, my final question would be uh, the traditional New Books Network question. What are you working on now? What I'm working on now uh, is a book project in conjunction with my wife, uh, Monica Lialda Silva, uh, who is a specialist in Portuguese. She's a native of Portugal. Uh, and what we're doing is we're translating, uh, largely she's doing the translating work because she's uh, far better at this than I am. Uh, we're translating sermons by Antonio Vieira, who was perhaps the most important uh, Portuguese uh, author of the 17th century. He lived, his life spanned the 17th century. 
Uh, and he lived between Portugal uh, and Brazil and Rome and Northern Europe. And in all of those places, he gave sermons and was known for his dramatic Baroque oratory. Uh, his writings are the kind of stuff that you read in high school in Portugal and Brazil, but they're virtually unknown in uh, the English-speaking world. And so what we're trying to do is uh, publish a series of translations, uh, a handful of translations from some of his greatest hits, so that English readers will have some understanding of the Catholic sermon uh, not mediated through the English context, through the context of English Catholicism, but rather uh, directly translated into modern English to give us some sense of this uh, Baroque register in which Vieta preaches, some of the themes that he looks at, uh, his understanding of Catholicism as it spread to the Americas. So I'm taking the story away from Japan and China and moving towards Brazil and to the Amazon where Vieta lived and preached uh, and trying to communicate this beautiful Portuguese uh, into readable and accessible English to give us a different view of the Atlantic world and Catholicism as it lived in the Atlantic world and how it links to Jesuit piety and uh, Jesuit culture uh, in the early modern Atlantic. Well, that sounds fascinating. Well, thank you again so much for giving us your time today. Thank you. You're welcome. It's nice to talk to you. This has been the Christian Studies channel of the New Books Network. I'm Dr. Franklin Rausch of Lander University, the host of the channel. I want to thank you for listening to this interview, and I hope you'll come back and listen to another one again soon.